guys, if you don't mind, uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray again. Father God, I come before you today. God, and I know this word that you've given me. God, I pray that you take me out of it and put you in it. God, may nothing come out of my mouth that you don't want said. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm very, very thankful to Paxton and David and Jim and the elders for this opportunity to speak. And like David said, <clears throat> excuse me, just a little bit ago, I'm not nervous, I'm anxious. And the reason I'm anxious, so back up a little bit, last, this coming July will be a year since I spoke last. And almost immediately following the last time I spoke, I felt God had impressed something on me that he wanted me to dig into and he wanted me to learn, but I also felt that he wanted me to share it in some aspect. I didn't know if that was going to be a one-on-one conversation, if it was going to be small group or even here. But one thing I did know is that if Jim were to ask me to speak again, I already had the basis of what I was supposed to talk about. So that part was awesome. But the part that I wasn't prepared for was that God was going to have me live through what he was showing me for almost a year before giving me the opportunity to share it. I wasn't ready for that. But what he took me through was a year of the importance of taking my thoughts captive and why it was so important. And I'll go ahead and give you a little news flash right now. Taking your thoughts captive is not something that you will master on this side of heaven. I've been going through this for almost a year now, and I struggle with it every single day. But just because we won't master it doesn't mean that we should ignore it. So why is it important? Guys, I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, there's not going to be any sermon notes up here. If you want to follow along, uh, there's going to be a lot of scripture out of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And there's also going to be a lot of scripture out of Matthew 4. So why is it important? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to obey Christ. If you really read into this, there's some extremely aggressive words in here. Weapons, warfare, Flesh, demolish, uh, uh, excuse me, demolition of strongholds, demolish arguments, 
captive. This sounds, to me, this sounds more like a pep talk that William Wallace would have given before charging into battle as opposed to something that we're going to see in Scripture. But see, I've come to learn that the unfortunate thing is that we can't understand the threats that are in this passage until we understand fully the damage that can be caused by ignoring it. See, later in Corinthians, Paul writes this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3. What's Paul talking about here? See, this is actually a reference back to Genesis. And what he's talking about is, well, most of us know the story of Adam and Eve and the fall, right? So in the beginning, God created perfection. Everything that he created was perfect and without flaw. You see, God showed his power through his words. God said, dot, 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 and it was so. He spoke, and it happened. Things came to be. He said, let there be light, and it happened. He didn't say, let there be protons and neutrons and electrons. And what, he didn't know. He said, let there be light, and whatever it took to make that light happened. Just like that. His words had power. So, he created the light, he created stars, he created human beings, every living thing, God created it. And in Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. In Genesis 2.8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. And in Genesis 2.9, the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree that was pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, the garden was created in God's perfection because, again, what God creates has no flaw. So God created this this garden where he placed the man to work. And the earliest transla translation we have in the Greek that was used to describe the garden is paradisos, which is where we get the English word paradise. You see, and so he created the Garden of Eden. Eden in the Hebrew actually means paradise or pleasure. So God created all this stuff. And in Genesis 1.31... God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. You see, the Bible doesn't really specify how many trees were in the garden. But we know that there were more than just a couple because the scripture says that every tree was pleasing to look at and good for food. And see, God told Adam that he was free to eat. From any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2.17 is, is where it says you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, God created us for this paradise 
and he created us to enjoy him and his creation forever. We weren't designed to bear the weight of evil in any sense, especially in our hearts and in our minds. That's why he said, you are free to eat from any tree except for. And in Genesis 2.31, he says, for on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. He doesn't say, if you think about eating from it, or he doesn't say, maybe if you guys kind of kick around the idea. No, he said, when, for on the day. He already knew that they were going to eat from it. So in comes the serpent, and check out what he says in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So I was reading back through this this morning, and I noticed something, and I, I talked to my wife about it. I'd never seen this before, but notice... Uh, in verse oh, 16, I believe it was, God gave Adam the command to not eat from the tree. Eve wasn't even created yet. But the enemy, when he comes into the garden, he attacks Eve. This is the first introduction of Satan that we have. And the first thing out of his mouth is a lie. It's a twisted truth because God said in Genesis 2.16, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. See, these two scriptures alone, they, they really give us a glimpse into the character of both God and the enemy. God says you are free and the enemy says you can't. And in Genesis 3, verses 2 and 3, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Satan immediately replies, no, you will not die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Right there, Satan's attacking their identity. Because they knew who they were in God. But Satan's coming at them for who they are. And, and giving them the false thought that God's actually holding out on them. And it goes on to say, The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. Well, duh. We read before that God said that. But keep in mind, God said that everything, all the trees were delightful to look at and good for food. But when God said that, Eve didn't exist yet. And so Eve took some, and she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. That's Genesis 3, verses 4 through 7. See, this is what Paul was talking about and what he was referring to in 2 Corinthians 11. And in a sense, I almost feel sorry for Adam and Eve because up to this point, there was no such thing as sin. They had never known guilt or shame or even deceit. 
They had only ever known freedom and perfection, but now they're facing something different, something new, something that they had never known before. You see, with his words, the enemy was able to cause them to question what they knew as truth by distorting their perspective and making them think that God was holding out on them. You see, God uses his words to create and to affirm, but the enemy uses his words to destroy and condemn. Either way, those words have power. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So, now that Adam and Eve had eaten from the forbidden fruit, sin is introduced, and with sin comes death. And as I started reading into this a little bit more and kind of meditating on it, I came to realize that even though they disobeyed God, he still showed them compassion. We read on to see that God drove them out of the garden, and he hid the garden and protected it with the cherubim so that no one could find it. But I came to realize, again, this is more about compassion than it is punishment. Because as we saw earlier, the tree of life was in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now that they had taken a bite out of the tree that ultimately brought upon death, God sent them away from the tree of life. Because if, if they were to eat from the tree of life after eating from the tree of death, they would live in a constant state of death and decay forever. That's compassion, not punishment. So, back to my original point about taking our thoughts captive. See, as we learned, words have power. And the majority of our thoughts are born from a collection of words. And what we think about ultimately results in the decisions that we make. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. See, the problem that... The problem I came to real, realize is we don't think about what we think about. And with the busy demands of our lives, we allow our minds to just wander like a piece of driftwood at sea, just reacting to the waves and the swells as they come. And too often we allow very dark thoughts like bitterness, entitlement, fear, and despair to be our normal. So what do we do then? Then we choose to self-medicate through substances like work, sports, sex, alcohol, and so on, just to try to get our minds off of the negativity. But usually, our self-medicating is followed closely by more bitterness, more guilt, more shame, and more despair. Thus, really, all we've done is allow more bad thoughts to sneak in as a result of us trying to escape the original bad thoughts. And what we somehow lose sight of is that if, if we try to rid ourselves of these negative thoughts without replacing them with good, life-giving thoughts, then really all we've done is leave a clean, empty house for more bad thoughts to live and for those lives to grow. We clean out the cobwebs, but we just make room for more cobwebs. We don't think about what we think about. See, last year when God started dealing with me on this, topic 
my mind and my thoughts were in a very fragile place. Some days I would be so full of the Spirit and feel God's presence in such a way that I might as well have been in the Garden of Eden myself. And then by lunchtime, sometimes the same day, you would have thought that I was the driver of a bus full of sinners and we headed right off the cliff. You see, my mind was like that piece of driftwood, just reacting to my surroundings, good, bad, or indifferent. And then God revealed to me the basic life cycle of a thought and how it guides our lives. And as I started reflecting on it, as I started thinking about what I think about, I realized it's true power. See, the life cycle of a thought is this. Our thoughts are born from what we see, hear, and experience. We then analyze those thoughts against our past experiences and how we were raised and what we have believed as truth up to that point in our life. We then filter that thought through our emotions and we store it in our heart as a belief. And then whatever is in your heart comes out of your mouth, further rooting that belief as truth. You see, Matthew 12, 34 says, For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And when we fail to take every thought captive, we leave ourselves defenseless. It's almost like, it's almost like telling the tower guard at an army post to take a break. Everything is fine till it isn't. And see, our good and positive thoughts, they don't really have a negative effect. And so we let our guard down because we're good, right? Wrong. See, if we let a single bad thought slip by unchecked, it starts a destructive version of the thought cycle. The thought is analyzed by our past, filtered with our emotions, believed in our hearts, spoken from our mouths, becoming a verbal agreement with that belief. So think about that. If you start this destructive cycle, you start storing these beliefs, then now, next time you have a new thought, you're going to test that new thought against the false beliefs that you have stored in your heart. So, oftentimes, like Eve... We're presented with a distorted perspective of the truth. See, if the enemy can distort the perspective of two people who physically spent time with God in the garden and had firsthand experience of his perfection, what's that say for us? See, Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. See, the fact is that we have an enemy that wants to destroy our joy. He wants to distort our perspective of God and God's goodness. And if he can maneuver his way into our thoughts, he can put us in invisible prisons of bitterness and guilt, shame. And if we get stuck 
in that destructive thought cycle, we're no longer a threat to him. We no longer advance the kingdom. He gets you focused on a negative thought. You're good for a week. He ain't got to worry about you. He's going to go over here and he's going to find somebody else. See, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. So how do we stop this cycle? How do we take these thoughts captive to obey Christ? We have to take these thoughts and test them against the truth. And I'm not talking about the truth that you have convinced yourself of, your version of the thought cycle. I'm talking about the absolute truth. So what is that? John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis 1, excuse me, John 1.14, And the Word became flesh, this is Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. In John 14.6, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus is the Word made flesh, and the Word is absolute truth, period. So we must know the Word in order to know the absolute truth. And when we meditate on God's Word, it has the power to literally change the way that we think. The fact of the matter is, if we're not meditating on God's Word as our source for building our life, then our minds are filled with something else. And whatever you think about the most will dictate the outcome of your life. Again, as I started thinking about what I think about, I started realizing that a lot of the poor decisions that I think I make start out of the desire for the perfection that we were originally created for, but somehow I wind up tainting it with my selfishness and my sinful nature. So it starts out as good and then turns bad. So, as an example of how to take these thoughts captive, we look at Matthew 4. Shortly after being baptized, John, the Baptist, affirmed God, or excuse me, uh, after being baptized by John and affirmed by God, God said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hangry. <laughs> that, that's the new international mic version, sorry. 
He was hungry and it was extremely weak in the flesh. But notice this is when the devil strikes. He attacks Jesus at his weakest moment, which is hunger and weakness. I don't know about y'all, but when I get hungry or hangry, especially 40 days worth of hangry, I'm going to make some stupid decisions. But luckily, Jesus, the Savior, was in that moment, not Mike. (laughs) Excuse me. So Matthew 4, verse 3, the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. But Jesus, being the word of God, knows the truth and is the truth and responds with truth from Deuteronomy 8. Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, what, what the devil was saying is true, but what Jesus was saying is truer. After that, Jesus was led up to the holy city of Jerusalem, to the top of the temple, which is speculated approximately 300 feet high. This time, the attack starts with a truth, but it's out of context and it's twisted. The devil quotes Psalm 91.12, and I want y'all to write this down because I want you to go back and look at it for yourself. Psalm 91.12 and Psalm 91.13. So the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, notice this is the second time in a row he's attacked Jesus' identity. Just as he attacked Adam's identity, or excuse me, Eve's identity in Genesis. But he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's Psalm 91, 12. And Jesus told him, it is also written, it is truer, do not test the Lord your God. The interesting thing, and this is why I wanted you to write this down. The interesting thing is when I went back and looked at this, This is what Psalm 91.13 says. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. The young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Why would the devil attack Jesus with scripture that ultimately ends in his defeat? Did he not realize what verse 13 said? See, 1 Peter 5.8 says he prowls around like a roaring lion. Genesis 3.1 calls him the serpent, and then we just read in verse 13, it says he will trample down both. (laughs) If I was Jesus, I would have totally thrown that in his face. (laughs) But Jesus even showed the devil some grace. Finally, Jesus was tempted with wealth and power if he would fall down and worship the devil, but he he didn't even entertain the idea. Verse 10, he says, Go away, Satan, for it is written... Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You see, Jesus was able to defeat the devil with the word of God because he is the word of God. But you and I are not. Therefore, because we are not the word made flesh, we have to read the word and study it and store it in our heart. 
Joshua 1.8 says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So think about this for a moment. In Revelation 12.10, the enemy is called the accuser of the brethren. And the modern English word devil actually derives from the Greek word diabolos, which means slanderer or accuser. And this is what Jesus had to say about him. And remember, Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is the truth. In John 8.44, he says, He was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus said there's no truth in him. Liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> See, about a month ago, my oldest daughter fell off a trampoline <clears throat> at a friend's house and broke her arm. And I remember riding back that night from getting x-rays, and I could see her in the rearview mirror. She was asleep, had her arm in a sling. Her face was real swollen from crying, and you could just, you could just tell that she had been in a lot of pain. And all of a sudden, these thoughts started running through my head. You're a terrible father. You're supposed to be her protector. If you wouldn't have turned your back for a moment, you could have stopped it. She's in this sling because of your neglect. All this pain and all these medical bills that are coming, you could have avoided that if you were a better parent. I didn't catch it at first. I didn't, I didn't see what was happening, but then my wife spoke up from the back seat. She said, I'm so stupid. If I would have been paying attention, this would have never happened. I'm a terrible mother. That's when it clicked. I was like, whoa, 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 wait. Full stop. Time out. Because God had been guiding me in this and revealing these things to me, I was able to catch it before it went too far this time. I can't say that for myself in the past. So I started reflecting on the truths that God had been showing me and started speaking them in the trunk. Because remember, our words have power. I started claiming the promises of God over my life and rebuking the enemy. Satan, you have no authority here. I command you to leave in the name of Jesus. I consecrate my family to you and place them under the blood of Jesus Christ. I bind up and I cast out any evil thing that may come against them in the name of Jesus Christ, my King. I am a child of God. He loves me deeply. Jesus shed his blood for me on the cross and rose again on the third day. I am not a terrible person because the word says I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Holy Spirit, I invite you into this moment because the word says where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And in Romans, it also says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I started filtering my thoughts 
through what the Word says instead of what the enemy was trying to tell me. He was trying to convince me and my wife that we were terrible people to take us out of the game. John 10.10 says, and this is Jesus speaking, A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. We have to place the word of God in the center of our minds and make every thought filter through it. Because let me tell you something. Your mind is the only battleground that nobody else can see. Nobody else can see the battles that you're facing right here. That's why we wear these masks. I can walk into church and pretend like everything's fine when it's not. Even though this is the only battleground that no one can see, this is also the one area that has the biggest impact on your life. You might say, I've already let my thoughts get too far. I don't know how to get back. Well, first of all, I'll tell you this. If you haven't accepted what Jesus did on the cross for you, you have no power. But it's a free gift. All you have to do is confess it and believe it. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved. Not I might think about saving you. It says you will be saved. See, Jesus died for all our sins. Not just the ones you've already committed, but the ones that you haven't committed yet. And see, Jesus wants to show us the way back to the perfection that we were created for. Secondly, we have to read the Word. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. John 8, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth. The truth is Jesus. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth. You will know Jesus, and Jesus will set you free. See, in reading the word... The word will actually separate absolute truth from our distorted view of it, our distorted version of it. Thirdly, you have to find some godly people. And I learned this from my brother Paxton. You have to, you have to find godly people and you have to give them permission to speak truth into your life. But let me warn you on this real quick. Be very, very, very careful who you give permission 
to speak truth into your life. Because you need people that, is go- that are going to speak absolute truth, not their, not give you advice based off their version of the thought cycle. We need godly people to hold us accountable. Lastly, we have to take back our thoughts and surrender them to God, even the ones that we've already believed, even the ones that have already started a destructive thought cycle. We have to take those words and give them to God, submit them to God. James 4, 7 says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, we have to submit and resist. Submit and resist. Submit and resist. God, I'm sorry for the things that I've believed that are not written in your word. God, I'm sorry for the things that I have said that have not spoken life into people. In Matthew uh, chapter 7, excuse me, uh, yeah, Matthew chapter 7, I thought this was pretty neat. So Jesus, he's talking about false prophets, right? And one thing he says is every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. And he goes on to say, you will recognize them by their fruit. See, I started thinking about this, and we really should apply this same concept to more than just one area of our lives. We should apply this same concept to our thought process. You will know them by their fruit. Is this a good thought? Is this a bad thought? You will recognize it by its fruit. Do your words speak life to your spouse? You will know them by their fruit. Do your words speak life over your life? You will know them by their fruit. I'd like everybody to close your eyes for just a second. I'm closing up. So we talked about the garden, and we know that the garden was perfect in every way. I want you to think of your mind as that garden. And in the center of your mind is the tree of life and the tree of death. I want to ask you a question. Which tree are you getting your fruit from? Father, I thank you for this word. God, I thank you for your trust and the ability to share this, Lord. I thank you for guiding me through it. I pray that you continue to show me the areas in which I need to apply this, Lord. Father, I ask your blessing for the rest of this day. And as we praise and worship you, Lord, ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.